Hello and welcome to Storytellers of STEM. My name is Rachel Villani. Today's storyteller is Dr. Anna Friebel. Anna is an astronomer and a stellar archaeologist working as a professor and researcher at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, most famously known as MIT. Her work focuses on finding the oldest stars in the universe, and y'all, this is some really mind-blowing work she's doing, or at least it blew my mind. In this episode, we learn about metal-poor stars, what that means, how one can like roughly tell the age of a star, what kind of information we learn from old stars, how one navigates in outer space, spoiler alert, there's a space coordinate system, I had no idea, and about her book, Searching for the Oldest Stars. This is such a great conversation. Anna is brilliant. I was so happy to meet her, and I really hope you all enjoy this. And also, as Lanyap, she's in the sixth cohort of Homeward Bound, and I'm in the fifth one. So we talk a little bit about Homeward Bound at the end and what drew us to the program in the first place. We also talk about things that aren't often taught in science education, you know, like writing and communicating and things like that. So we have a bit of a tangent about that at the end. All right, enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening. Okay, so I looked at your Twitter page and saw that you are a stellar archaeologist, and I would love you to just start by telling me all about that. <laughs> yeah, um, that that always gets people interested. Now, I, I work on, on old stars, stars that are 13 billion years old. I, I sometimes say, like, you know, the archaeologists, they dig in the dirt to find clues um, from, from times long past. And I kind of dig in the sky to find these old stars because they tell us about how the universe was looking like um, 13 billion years ago. So you put the two things together and you end up being a stellar archaeologist. <laughs> how do you find old stars? How does one even do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it's actually not not quite so easy. So obviously, um, uh, old stars are fairly rare because many generations of stars have formed since then. Uh, so we're looking for the needle in the haystack. And the way we do this is uh, through some workarounds because we can't actually determine the age of a star. That, that would be really nice. Um, and that would be easy, but that, that doesn't work for a number of complicated reasons. So what we do is we, uh, we do it through chemical composition. And for that, I have to go on a small tangent, but I promise I'll come back quickly. Uh, the universe started off uh, after the Big Bang, just being hydrogen and helium. And then all the other elements that we know from the periodic table, they were formed in stars in supernova explosions and some other processes. And um, over time, all of this material has increased, which means uh, the sun, uh, our home star, that formed 4.6 billion years ago, that one formed from 8 billion years of element production <laughs> in, in the location, uh, you know, in the, in the pre so-called pre-solar nebula. And it contains a whole lot of all the elements, uh, actually a whole 2%. <laughs> so that's, that's a lot for, for us. And um, 
because of this increase, we, we actually play the, the opposite game. We say like, oh, if I want to find an old star, I need to find one that has very, very little of all the heavy elements in it because it must have formed at a time when not that much of the elements had been produced yet. And we do that uh, through spectroscopy. So we, we observe many, many stars in the sky with a spectrometer. We turn the starlight into little rainbows and then certain colors are missing from the rainbows because uh, the, the colors have been absorbed by different types of atoms in the outer portion or the outer layers of, of the star. And that's exactly what tells us which elements are present in the star and how much of them. And then this all only works because the stars that we are looking at, they're, they're kind of lazy. <laughs> they're little and lazy. And uh, the, outer, uh, the outer layers still have the exact same composition as, uh, as the birth gas cloud from which they're formed. So uh, they, they burn hydrogen to helium for energy generation purposes in their cores, but, but the outer parts actually never talk to the core. So they don't know what's going on, uh, which means they are still exactly in the same state as when the star was born. And the cool thing for us where the stellar archeology span part comes back in is that the stars have the same composition as the birth gas cloud. So if we analyze what is in the star, we are effectively analyzing what was in these early gas clouds. And so then we really have a fantastic tool for studying, for, for reaching back that far and for studying the, the composition of the universe back then. That's, that's really neat. <laughs> that is really neat. <laughs> yeah, so when I looked up like, really old stars it said that they were um whatever the word was like they didn't have a lot of heavy metals there was a word for it but i don't remember metal poor yeah well there you go <laughs> because all like astronomers <laughs> call all the elements metals oh. <laughs> except for hydrogen and helium right we 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 think that they are special because the universe is mostly made from hydrogen and helium but everything else is a metal so you know neon is a metal interesting <laughs> magnesium <laughs> is a metal yeah. I mean, it's also a metal you might agree with that <laughs> yes oxygen <laughs> perfect metal <laughs> that's funny i didn't know that it's it's funny how different groups of scientists or whoever group things differently. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So metal poor stars, but I didn't understand why they were metal poor. So that's really cool how that happens because they just yeah. didn't have all those metals around yet. Exactly. And it's, it's comparison to the sun, right? So everything mm -hmm. that's older or huh. formed prior to the formation of the sun is, is metal poor. And then stuff formed uh, since uh, we call super metal rich. It was <laughs> so more than the sun. That makes sense using um, the sun, which we all can easily see as a, um, a land, landmark, not the right word, like as a measure of before and after kind of, because it is on the, on the younger side, you know, you said it was four point something billion years old. I mean, that's a lot younger than 13 billion years old. Yeah. It's a baby. Yeah, <laughs> a teenager. <laughs> yeah, comparatively, anyway. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about the spectroscopy? Because it just sounds, it sounds fascinating. Uh, yeah, I mean, as I said, we 
we have a really big telescope. I use the ones in Chile, the Magellan telescope. They have mirrors uh, that are 6.5 meters in diameter. So rather large toys. <laughs> and uh, when it's not pandemic times, we usually travel there and um, press a whole lot of buttons. That's fun. And at the telescope, there are uh, several instruments mounted and a few of them are spectrographs. So they're like giant prisms, basically. And the starlight gets split up into the rainbow colors. And uh, that is recorded, but there are these dark lines in, in between that sort of showcase that some of the colors are, are missing. And when you take a cross cut along the rainbow, you, you will see what we call absorption lines. Each element in the stellar atmosphere um, you know, in, in the atom, you have electrons and they, they zip around and they go from one level to another. And that, that takes energy at very specific wavelengths. And so that corresponds to the colors. And we literally see that missing, which tells us, oh, that iron atom or so-and-so many iron atoms were in that star absorbing that light of that particular wavelength or color. We are seeing less of that <laughs> because the, the atoms have taken from us. Yeah, I didn't quite understand how light was displayed as color and then what that told you, but that you just explained it and that was really helpful. So that's, yeah, it's just rainbow science. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> rainbows are a little bit more complicated <laughs> because the, the, the light goes through the raindrop, right, through a sphere and bounces around within the water drop for uh, four times, I think, three or four times. Or, well, depending on how many times you see like a, a double rainbow, for example. Um, but the idea is the same. So a prism, just a prism, you know, split up the light. And... Oh, man, there's so many cool things in science. Um, and I know like almost nothing about astronomy, except for the few things, a few people I've talked to so far, and it's mind blowing to me. <laughs> <laughs> Very different than green little plants. Uh, so I want, you said that the stars what's in the stars tells you what was in the gas clouds when they were formed. But like, I don't think I knew that there even were gas clouds. And so like, how does all of that work? I guess is my question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the universe, uh, you know, started with the big bang and um, today, and, and it was, you know, it was hot and smooth back, back then. And today it's not so hot. <laughs> Space is pretty cold <laughs> and it's full of structure. We have, you know, our Milky Way, but the Milky Way is, is part of um, a galaxy cluster. And then there are clusters of galaxies <laughs> uh, and, and clusters of clusters. Um, so there's, there's a whole web structure in the universe. It's, it's not smooth at all. Um, and, of course, that had to start somehow. So early on, you, you had a little bit more... Ma mass or matter here and a little bit less over there so slight over densities kind of like in a mountainous area and um, that led to the clumping of of gas and then it's kind of with money you know money goes where money already is and in the universe with all that gravity matter goes where matter is because that's where gravity is operating well <laughs> and uh, so you know, the gas was kind of streaming along to these slightly denser places. And this is where the first galaxies formed. 
and the first galaxies were really, really wimpy, there were really nothing more than a big fat gas cloud, maybe a million solar masses heavy, so 1,000 suns. And um, what we want to know is what, how, how did this really work and how did these early gas clouds, these early galaxies, how did they evolve? What happened in them, right? How did the stars form? How did they play along? How did they die? And what happened to the, the metals, the chemical elements? I'm, I'm really interested in the origin of the elements. And what we have found uh, from theoretical simulations and our observations and, you know, putting, putting this all together to kind of try to make up a story is that there were some first stars and first stars are really big and puffy because the gas did not contain any heavier elements than hydrogen and helium in the beginning. And then for a number of reasons that I don't want to go into, you end up with the really big and puffy stars. And when you have big, massive stars, 20, 50, 100 times the mass of the sun, then they will have a really short lifetime, a few million years only, and they will explode as massive supernovae. And then all the elements that they have cooked up for energy generation purposes, plus additional ones cooked up during the explosion, get all you know spilled into, into this early gas cloud. And um, then the second generation of stars forms, and uh, now there are a few metals in the gas and so it cools better and you can make small stars and small stars can live really long. Um, and this is the key to, to our work too, because we look for stars that have lifetimes of 15 to 20 billion years. And the universe is only, you know, let's say 14 billion years old. So these guys still have, have a while to go, which means they're really good targets for us. And uh, as I already said, they, they today have the same composition as the gas, but the really interesting bit is that I haven't said yet is we want to know where the elements come from that we observe because they were not made in the star that we're observing. They came from the star of the previous generation. So the one from the ones that were there first, these, these real uh, party stars, <laughs> the really big ones that exploded first because we like to really know how, how it all began, like literally from day one. Um, but because they had such short lifetimes, we will never be able to, to observe or study them directly. But they have left us behind this fingerprint, this chemical fingerprint that, that our little stars have preserved for 13 billion years or so. And that's the cool thing. So we work with theorists who model these first massive explosions and then uh, compare our obse observed abundance patterns to that to see if it kind of matches. And from that, we can learn about the, the properties of the first stars, such as their mass and explosion energy and whether they were more spherical or more, like sort of more cigar shaped <laughs> shooting, shooting out on the sides during the explosion or you know, all sorts of other funny things. <laughs> Okay, so the archaeology part makes way more sense now, <laughs> because it sounds like the universe, if I'm not mistaken, is 13.8 billion years old, but the oldest stars that you have studied are around 13 billion years, so they're the second generation from the, after the big puffy ones? 
it sounds like yeah yeah okay so as I said at the beginning we can't really measure ages so these are sort of approximate numbers we we can measure very very rough ages for some stars as in like one two three stars uh, so that's sort of where the 13 comes from um they they shouldn't be taken with a digit <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> Um, and it, it took about 300 million years for the first stars to emerge, so 13.5 billion years ago. And then, you know, it probably depended on local conditions, whether it took another 100 million years <laughs> or, or two or three. Um, so it's, it's that sort of ballpark. Yeah, it just it makes sense why, you know, the oldest stars aren't as old as the universe, because there's all this these other stars that have turned the blue up and then now we have these ones after it. So that makes, that's why it makes sense to me. Uh, There's actually an interesting anecdote here because when I was in high school, I learned that the oldest star clusters are 15 uh, or 20 billion years old. And uh, the universe wasn't quite as old. It that was supposed to be like 15 or 16 billion years or something like that. And so <laughs> there was at times a bit of a discrepancy that some content of the universe was older than the universe itself. <laughs> but that was because um, actually both parties were wrong. <laughs> the star clusters are no longer that old and the universe is also no, no longer that old. <laughs> and it's, it's fitting much better now. That's the great thing about science, though. You get, like, better information. You, That's how it works. That's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, you just have to wait long enough and hope that right, you yeah. see the light of day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's also a lengthy process. <laughs> yeah, and very time-consuming. So one of the things I saw is that, first of all, you have a Wikipedia page, which is awesome, and that uh, on Wikipedia, it says you have discovered what it says it, two stars, but maybe it's at least two stars. I don't know. Uh, I would just kind of want to hear about like discovering a star. Like that seems like that's probably not an immediate thing, but I mean, because science, like we were just talking about, is a lengthy process. So can you just tell me about discovering a star or stars in general or one in particular? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've discovered lots of stars. <laughs> they, they don't all make it into Wikipedia. That's that's okay. Yeah, because we're looking for the needle in the haystack. Um, it takes quite a few steps in order to eventually, you know, sift. I mean, it's like looking for gold nuggets, right? You stand in the river with your your strainer for for quite a while, <laughs> and 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 we we almost literally do the same thing, right? We, we don't get wet, but we spend too much time with telescopes taking a, you know, a big survey or we use someone else's survey data. By now it's mostly someone else's because that has become big business. When I started that, that wasn't the case. So we had to do a lot more work ourselves. So we, we take low resolution spectra. So really crummy, quick spectra that that's give, that give us an idea. We don't see much in the spectrum besides um, uh, a hint of the absorption of calcium. And that's, uh, that's the strongest absorption line in the stellar spectrum. And if that calcium line looks very weak, then that's suggestive of the, of the abundance being low. Of course, we apply all sorts of other cuts and criteria. <laughs> it's all backful, but that's what it boils down to. And so we go from millions of stars to hundreds of candidates, basically. 
And then we have to take better data for those. So spectra with higher resolution, which means we can see finer structure in the absorption lines. And many elements have only very, very small absorption lines compared to the calcium line. Uh, iron is one of them. Iron is sort of a key element that, that we always study and use as a reference element. And uh, so we have these candidates and take, take them to the telescope and then we'll, we'll look at the data and then you know we'll, we'll see what we find. And then there are sort of small eureka moments at the telescope here and there. I mean, most stars look the same, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> uh, but about one in 10 or so shows some interesting feature. Now, these interesting features are usually not earth shattering, but at least, you know, keeps you motivated to, to keep going. And then, I don't know, one every 100 or 200 stars, or sometimes three or 500, <laughs> you, you find something that's more exciting and then, or really exciting. And then the question is how exciting that could get. And, I've been fortunate enough to find some several record holders over the years. Um, I hold quite a few. Some have been toppled, others haven't yet. <laughs> some I toppled myself. Those are the best ones, or, or with my teens. <laughs> not, not always just, just by myself. Uh, I mean, that, those are satisfying, you know, and you can sort of break your, your own world record. And um, yeah, so it's, it's just, a lot of data, a lot of analysis. And, and then when you have something that, that looks like it could be a record holder, then, then you actually have a lot more work because you have to really prove that that's what you think it is. <laughs> so you have to not just do the normal analysis, but also sorts of tests. Because, you know, we are looking for, for nothing, basically. We're looking for the nothing, like the, the smallest absorption lines that indicate that there's almost nothing, but we always want at least something, so three atoms or something, so we can actually prove that it is there, but it's very low. Saying, just saying like, oh, there's nothing is actually not that exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's very exciting, but it's more exciting to, if you can quantify it, because in science, we always want to quantify it. And one of our record holder stars only has an upper limit for the iron abundance, and it's incredibly low and incredibly interesting. But it would be so, 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 so much more interesting if we could actually put a number to it. <laughs> it's like minus infinity, <laughs> you know, it's, it's great. But, you know, uh, I'd like, I like an actual number because that that will always be the best <laughs> and uh, yeah so having a noisy spectrum and then you know, claiming that there's something little there that we can just measure and means this and this and that that uh, that can turn out to be quite a lot of work <laughs> but it's okay that, that's that's what we ultimately want to do yeah that's why we signed up to do what we do right it's always a lot of work but that doesn't mean it's not awesome yeah, when, when it happens, it is. And it's certainly a very few nervous moments at the telescope, and then you have to get more data. And, and then what happens if it gets cloudy? You know, then you're just screwed. Yeah. <laughs> Once you can't use your telescope time that you have, have applied for, you have to come back next year. Because mm. you have to reapply and then get it again. So there's no, no makeup time. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's tough. 
<laughs> yep. Okay, I have uh, several questions. So you said that so you have several stars that are record holders, like record holders in what? What kind yeah. of records? We haven't talked about that yet. So I mentioned in passing that we use iron as the uh, reference element and we quantify the overall heavy element content, the metal content by means of iron. That element has has absorption lines across the, the spectrum. The, the, you know, we use visual light spectrum. And so we, we get lots of lines. And so it's, 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 it's very straightforward to measure and has, has good statistics. Other elements only have like one line. <laughs> if there's a problem with the data there, then you, you lose it. <laughs> uh, so iron is, uh, is a good one. Yeah, as, because we use it as a proxy, that's when, when we find a star that has a particularly low iron abundance, that, that's usually sort of the record holder nature that, that we're talking about. And I found the lowest iron stars in, in the Milky Way and in quite a few different small dwarf galaxies. So early galaxies that were caught by the Milky Way and are gravitationally bound to it. And they are still floating around in the outskirts of the Milky Way and actually future food <laughs> dinner <laughs> uh, for the Milky Way. But the Milky Way hasn't eaten them up just yet. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, some are already being tugged and chewed on. <laughs> Interesting. And we can see that, but uh, not all of them. That's got to be like a lengthy time-wise process for like the Milky Way to eat one of these other things. I'm guessing, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it can take uh, like a, a billion year or so. It, it really depends on the on the mass difference. So if you have two systems that are reasonably equal in mass, then it goes faster because the tidal forces are stronger. And it also de depends on the infall angle, you know, stuff like that. So the, the orbital properties of, of the two. But um, yeah, in the outskirts of the Milky Way, you can you can bind little little fluffy things um, for for quite a while. That's really cool. <laughs> As in like billions of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's it's hard for me thinking on like a time scale that long because or that big maybe because I'm not used to it. But it's just like it's fascinating. Uh, you know, just don't worry so much about the units. It's just one, two, three until thirteen. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Whereas like for me, I'm mostly thinking in like years because, you know, our wetland stuff is monitored for 20 years, which is lengthy in ecology, but like nothing didn't even count really on like, you know, billions of years scale. <laughs> you said y'all use a telescope in Chile and I'm curious why there is, you know, like what's the reasoning behind that? Because I know there's big telescopes around the world, but. They're all in similar places, namely high up in mountains, or ideally in, in a mountainous area where it's fairly dry because, you know, we, telescopes are expensive to run and we want to get the, the best views. And so in the Atacama Desert in Chile uh, specifically, um, it's, it's quite high up and it's extremely dry and clean and clear. And so you get fantastic images there. Other, other places are Hawaii, the Mauna Kea mountain on Hawaii. I've, I've been there a number of times. Um, or Tenerife, also a, a volcanic uh, mountain there. But yeah, many, many telescopes are in Chile. Um, an additional thing, of course, is that 
you you need a country that's politically stable over long times, you know, to set up long-term scientific collaborations. And so the Europeans have had telescope there uh, ever since the 70s, I think. Uh, and Chile is is an ideal place in that regard also. Yeah, that all makes sense. I just wasn't, didn't, just didn't know. Okay, I have a big question. What drew you to astronomy in the first place? Was there like a one specific moment? Did you always know? Was it something somewhere random along the way? Like, what was it? So I'm one of these uh, weird people who always knew what they wanted to do. I always wanted to work with stars. So the the really weird thing is that it's actually worked out and not that I wanted it in the first place, right? Because we all want to be astronauts. I wanted to actually also be an astronaut for, for a little while, but I, I figured that uh, me in the centrifuge would probably not, <laughs> not go down so, so great. Uh, so I pivoted to the next best thing that, that was an astronomer. Uh, and yeah, I always knew stars uh, kind of my thing. And here I am. <laughs> we're, we're talking about stars. Yeah, it's great when it works out because it definitely doesn't all the time. I was kind of curious because I, I saw some, I always like see what I can find about people before I talk to hopefully come up with like interesting questions. And there was, I think it was MIT that had like a write-up about you and it was that you had gone, had gone to Australia for something. And then there was like this massive wildfire and it just sounded like chaos. And I know it was in this story that I already read, but can you tell me? Cause I just, it just seems fascinating and insane, really. It, it was a little insane. I, I was doing my PhD at the Australian National University and um, they had a telescope not on site in Canberra. Well, they also had telescopes there, but I used the one at the, at the other observatory, um, 600 kilometers north. And that was in the middle of a national park. And I was sitting in my telescope and they were doing a back burning uh, for fire prevention purposes, you know, for days. And uh, they were doing it downhill. We would just see the smoke. <laughs> and uh, one of these got a little out of control and moved up uh, the mountain. And so I was watching it for several days, just uh, steadily getting closer. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the evening, you'd see like the embers glowing and stuff. <laughs> And uh, one day it it made it to the to the mountain top, and then it kind of within a few hours it it moved straight towards the wooden pole that was holding the cables of my telescope, <laughs> and that was only I don't know twenty meters away, you know, twenty yards, <laughs> thirty yards maybe, and I was like, mm, you know all the smoke uh, now, you know, the, the sewer pipeline was also going there. I figured maybe that's not so great when that gets too hot. Uh, and, and, and I want to keep power because I want to keep observing. So I called the observatory fire brigade. And uh, by then some wind of course had come up and there was suddenly the entire mountaintop was covered in smoke. And then the fire alarm in the neighboring telescope went off but nobody was in there and eventually with someone else we had to like unscrew the entire fire alarm because we, we weren't able to to actually turn it off and it was like blazing in our ears and then I helped with the fire brigade uh, to hose the fire and um yeah that 
<laughs> that was quite something. The unfortunate thing was that that wasn't the end of it, at least not, not for, for my observations, because with all the smoke in the air, uh, you know, the light, the sunsets turn so nice and red when there's smoke in the air. And so the blue light gets scattered and then you only have the, the, the red. And I like to observe blue light from my stars. So those photons did not make it to my detector, only the red ones. And for the next three days, I observed just grass and I, I wasn't getting anywhere. Uh, and the ash was, you know, still flying around. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of seen it all yeah I mean that's not something you expect to happen you know like I mean ever but also when you're in the middle of doing your PhD research <laughs> all good as long as you get a good story out of it yeah. but it, it certainly wasn't funny at the time <laughs> no of course not no it was probably terrifying and also just like chaos it sounds like yeah at some point I I grabbed the little um uh, the fire extinguisher we had you know a little handheld thing in in the control room and I, was, I, I ran outside with that little thing I was like I'm going to defend my telescope but I, I had never used to this day I've never used a handheld fire extinguisher so I had no idea how that would work and obviously you don't get very far <laughs> with that thing against a wildfire even a small one uh, but yeah I was I was determined and yeah in my enthusiasm I I, I overlooked a big rock and I like jammed my leg so hard oh, no <laughs> i had this giant bruise to to bring home <laughs> yeah you don't normally think about like fighting fires and random rocks when you're doing astronomy because no, no. You know. i mean I, I should say that the observatory in canberra uh, in canberra uh, had burned down <laughs> oh, one or two years before so i knew what what it is to to be stuck in a in a bushfire in 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 the city actually so that that was quite okay. severe what what i what i saw there that that made me particularly nervous about that situation because i wasn't going to have anything happen to that telescope i mean not that i had that much to do with it but you know i could call the fire brigade so that's what i did yeah do whatever you can even if it's just making phone calls yeah <laughs> yeah oh my god that's so bizarre um picturing you outside the telescope with the fire extinguisher this is a really tangent but like my dad set their property on fire when I was a kid or whatever and I got home from school off the school bus and the yard's on fire and my dad was a volunteer fireman but he was just like here defend the house with like the garden hose right because that was he had to go get the fire truck and so he's like I'll be right back and, I was, and he just left me there with like I was a teenager which is like the fire, like the garden hose and the yard on fire. Just like, you better be that quick because I don't know how long I can do this. Everything ended up fine. And then when my mom came home later, we're like, you know, acres of land on fire. We just like pretended it didn't happen. And she was just like, what happened? We're like, well, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I don't know if she knows yet the story, but uh, that's just what it made me think of. Like, maybe not the most effective, but you just do what you can. You yeah, know? exactly. Okay, I have maybe a logistical question is maybe the right way to say this. So, you know, navigating around the earth, you have like coordinates and lat long or north south or whatever. But like, how do you keep track of, you know, stars across the galaxy when, you know, we're moving and everything's kind of moving? And like, I don't understand really how to keep track of those things. Is there some sort of space coordinate system? Like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so there are 
there are a variety of, of coordinate systems that you can choose. You know, when you go to the telescope, you, you have a target list and they have coordinates, uh, right ascension and declination. So now how far are they up and then in which direction? We have north and south from the, the telescope is in the southern hemisphere. So we can only observe the southern targets and too far north. We would need to look through the earth <laughs> that that's not yet working. Um, and so that's um, that's sort of with respect to to us. But you can also place coordinates into the galactic center and kind of measure things from there. Uh, we often try to measure distances. Uh, some specific uh, measurements are required for that, but uh, a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago by now, a satellite uh, called Gaia was shot into space to, to make those measurements for um, quite a few million stars, <laughs> sort of mapped all the, the brighter stars in the galaxy. and. Distances are usually measured uh, with respect to the galactic center. So we um, we are quite a while away from the galactic center. Um, there's a big fat black hole sitting there, so we don't need to, to worry about that. Um, but uh, yeah, so most is sort of measured there. Um, some stuff is measured with respect to the sun. For example, when we measure uh, velocities, that's with respect to the sun. We place ourselves, we have corrections that place us into the sun because if we were, you know, if we weren't doing this, if we were, if we truly measure from earth, then because we're moving around the sun, every six months we would measure a different velocity for the star. <laughs> um, the difference would be uh, up to 30 kilometers per second because that's the speed of earth going around the sun. So we need to kind of swap coordinates to, you know, or, you know, reference point uh, in that case to, to avoid <laughs> that. If you were sitting or, you know, orbiting another star, then, you know, everything would, would be different again. So it's always with respect to something that, that we just have to define and then we all need to stick to it and then that kind of works out. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. I was just sitting here wondering, like, how do you refine things? I mean, there's a lot of space out there. So that makes sense. I just had no idea. <laughs> we do have a, a North and a South Galactic Pole. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you just you know pop up the, the, the Milky Way is a 3D thing up and down. Well, how do we decide what's up and what's down? You know, with respect to the Earth, you know, North and South, you know, we 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 don't change our our perspective with regards to the plane of the Milky Way, right? If you consider the, the I mean, the Milky Way is a spiral galaxy, and uh, the, the spiral arms form the disk, and so we have a plane there. And with respect to that plane, we're sitting a little bit above the plane. Um, the the Earth is not changing its its orientation. Okay, that makes sense. I felt like that was kind of a dumb question, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you never thought about it, you have to do it once. Yeah, it's not, not I mean, too hard. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it, it almost seemed like it would be arbitrary, but it makes sense in relation to us because, I mean, that's where we are, right? So, and like you said, it's not like we are changing our direction like that, so... Yeah, I mean, you know, and everything that that is affected by our motion, you know, that gets moved somewhere else to the sun or the galactic center and otherwise not. Yeah, that makes sense. That's so yeah. cool. Okay, I have a non-astronomy related question because uh, being part of HB6, I'm curious how you heard about Homer Bound. 
You know, I can't quite remember, but I have known about it for quite some time, possibly going back to, I think I learned about it just after the HB three or four call. So several, several years ago, I waited for, for a number of years uh, before applying. And I don't know, I might've seen it on Twitter. I mean, some, I stumbled across it in a, in a kind of random fashion, mm-hmm. maybe Facebook. And I was like, huh, that sounds quite like down my alley. Uh, I teach uh, leadership and professional strategies and skills career development uh, type course at MIT now. Uh, so I've always been interested in, in the subject and, and done, done a lot on it. It was only ever the question of when and not if. <laughs> that sounds yeah. like presumptive, but uh. No, that's how I felt. As soon as I first learned about it, I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to keep applying until they just either keep telling me no or eventually say yes. <laughs> so... <laughs> which is just, I mean, it only took, I got in the second time. Um, so yeah, I was just curious because, I mean, I ask everybody that because it seems to be a lot of word of mouth. And so I, yeah, I was just curious really, because a friend told me about it mm. because her friend, when she lived in Australia knew about it, it just like traveled across the world to me. Yeah. Cool. That course you teach sounds really cool. And like, I wish I had had a course like that when I was in college or grad school, because that seems like that would have been really useful. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, so more and more people are getting getting that idea that that could be useful. And um, since I had done all sort of individual, I, I called it career chats that I would have with you know women grad students, for example, or other you know special interest groups. And um, two years ago, um, a colleague approached me and was like, hey, you know, I'm doing something similar. Why don't we join forces? And then we, we met a lot of interesting people at MIT and convinced them that that would be a good thing to do and that they should put funding to it. And last year we taught it for the first time and we're just finishing the second round. So yeah, that's, it's pretty awesome to have a department's backing of it. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but there's a lot of good initiatives right now happening that that indicate that there is a future for for things like that uh, and more so i hope fingers crossed <laughs> yeah I mean, right? and I, i'm also writing a book about it right now are you that's fantastic well because there's no you know every every physics and astronomy class has sort of a textbook <laughs> to go along with it because nothing was invented yesterday <laughs> <laughs> and um, of course there are many sort of standard leadership books out there but they are not really i think targeting targeting academics so much um because we're we have sort of special needs <laughs> very yeah specific. Um, a, it will be good for the course to to have a book where people can just you know read on their own time, mm-hmm. and um, also to simply broadcast the message that this is something that that is needed and that needs to get integrated into uh, university curricula, mm-hmm. uh, certainly for for grad students and and postdocs as well. As yeah, okay. Forgotten about. <laughs> I'm definitely going to need you to let me know when that book comes out <laughs> because even though I'm not in academics, I mean I am in research, so you know I'm sure yeah, lots of it will Actually, apply. that would be really great because I I am trying to um, write it in a in a fairly broad yet specific way, and 
it uh, targets people in research positions. Mm -hmm. So you could um, you could tell me <laughs> whether I've succeeded or you know, still too narrow-minded. Yeah, I'm sure it would be great because I feel like most leadership books are targeted to business. Exactly. Which, not that there aren't good lessons in them, but it's hard to like take an example from a business perspective and then put it in my like scientific research field. Like they don't like the, some of the parts aren't always the same and some of the goals aren't always the same. And so it's oh, hard and to the translate. Completely different. Yeah. Um, there is, it, it doesn't work. It really doesn't. Yeah. Um, we have an entire business school and they have all of these courses already integrated part, mm -hmm. as part of their model. Uh, so they are, they're miles ahead, but that's because there's, you know, the entire literature is, is centered around that. And so academics and leadership almost sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> right. I mean, it's not a, not a thing I thought about at any point in my education because it wasn't even on the list of things to take, you know? So exactly. that was part of what appealed to me so much about Homeward Bound because there isn't really any leadership training available to me as a, like, non-university researcher that that's like just not a thing that exists and so I was like oh women in STEM and leadership and strategy and all these things that like I have no idea where to even start and so that's what was so appealing to me so yeah, yeah, yeah. so I know much already but um it, a few few things that we we covered so far were were quite interesting to me sometimes you know just because it's sort of presented from through a slightly different lens for example um and there's always something new to learn. <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 I've, I have learned so much. And I, every time we have another call, I'm like, I didn't think I could learn anymore, but here we are. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Well, so speaking of books, I also saw that you have written another book. Um, yeah. I didn't write down the title though, but I know it's about finding old stars. Yeah. And yeah. Searching for the oldest stars. They should have been really finding the oldest stars, but you know, there's two different things, searching and finding. <laughs> sure. Yeah. They're already there. So <laughs> yeah, but I do both. Yeah. So it's called searching for the oldest stars and it details. Um, I, I like to do things a little bit out of, out of the box because the, the tried and tested is sometimes also a little bit boring. And mm -hmm. when you think of, you know, um, glossy magazines reporting the latest results from from science around the world you you do get the perfect results handed to you on a golden platter for i don't know 995 <laughs> at the newsstand um, but it actually tells you nothing about how these results were achieved how many attempts it took for the scientists to to get there you know how many times they have failed how long, even how long, simply just how long it took, right? Mm -hmm. Any and all is, is, is just not reported on. It's just the, the last little bit. Mm -hmm. Obviously that, that's really important, but it's, uh, it, it isn't exactly a human story. Um, and so I decided in, in my book to, to indeed also present the golden pieces, you know, on, on, the, on the platter, <laughs> but also to explain how I got there. So I have a lot of stories about telescopes, the, the fires, uh, my discovery stories. I'm detailing several, uh, how many ups and downs it actually took before getting there and how much luck, uh, you know, was involved. In. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, not, not only luck, you also need to spot your luck and then act on it and usually act fast and hard. But um, 
I really wanted to give a more well-rounded perspective of what life as a scientist looks like, because this is the book that I wrote to my younger self. I had nothing when I was a teenager and nobody could answer my questions. And all I wanted to know is whether becoming an astronomer is a total pipe dream <laughs> or an actual possibility. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope it makes for a good read. Yeah, I love that. Cause I, you know, you're right. A lot of the stories are just like about the end result but they don't provide the context of like that this research took X number of years or all the things that didn't work beforehand like you're talking about. So I think that that's important to, to highlight and to talk about. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, this is, I think, in the end, what gets young people interested. It's not the shiny end result. It has no character and no personality and tells you exactly nothing about your life or your dreams, right? It's kind of like, I want to win the Nobel Prize. Uh, just tell me how. <laughs> I mean, it's how that's that's important, right? And that's what what makes something inspiring um, to to pursue. And uh, there's, there's not enough material like that out there. Uh, and that's why, you know, outreach and, and talking to people about science, not just about science, is, is so important, especially for, for younger people. Yeah, I totally agree that there's not enough examples out there of like how someone got to where they are besides just like what they do, you know. And so I think that's important. No, I talk a lot about that in interviews. And I think that's why where people usually like like to read them because it's not just all the standard answers, right? Because it's just my story. Right, yeah. <laughs> Everyone yeah. has a different story and that, that makes it interesting. Yes, yes, it's very true. And I, I thank you very much for uh, telling your story here. I have two last questions and I will let you go because, and they're short, because I know it's, you know, getting a bit late there. I like to ask like non-science related questions just because scientists and people in STEM are human. So I am curious what your hobbies are. Well, I used to have hobbies <laughs> before I had kids. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, now they, they take up all my time. What I have made of it is I, I have sort of discovered new things. And actually, I do like writing. So I like teaching about writing and I like to write. And so this is part of the reason why I'm currently working on, on my second book, because I like to battle the words and I like to really very precisely uh, to a science um, <laughs> express what what I want to say on, on paper. And um, that's something I can kind of do in between and uh, anywhere where I am. I don't really need equipment besides my, my laptop. And I, I do enjoy that. I also enjoy working with students on, on their manuscripts and things like that. Um, I'm not sure if they're enjoying my pedantic <laughs> comments. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think they all agree at the end of the day, they, they learn something. So I do take that, that quite serious because learning how to write is such an important skill that is also, by the way, never properly taught except for maybe some, you know, college classes. But by the time you, you're in a PhD program, that's been a while. <laughs> uh, so I, I do enjoy that. Um, I, used to, I, I like traveling and I have traveled extensively with, with my children. Obviously, that, that's not working out either right now. Uh, so uh, not, not too much um, happening. Um, I like cooking. 
so I'm, you know, more more domestic these days. But I used to, uh, when I was in high school, I used to do figure roller skating and I sewed my own clothes and designed uh, fancy dresses <laughs> and, and sewed them. Uh, but uh, those those days are mostly behind me, although I, I do still sew um, Halloween costumes for the kids. There you go. That happens here and there. I have a a little prince costume (laughs) that both kids have now gone through. Yeah, that's that's cute. (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's great. Yeah, and some of that, you know, when the pandemic is eventually over, you can have back, but, you know. And maybe I'll take up something new then, you know. Yeah. It'll it'll be a new life. Who who knows? (laughs) Right, yeah, that's a totally good point. It could... There's a number of things that could happen after. And my other question is, what are you reading right now, if anything? Because I realize not everybody's a heavy reader like I am. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in the last few years, I, I uh, kind of have to say I, I wrote more books than I read. <laughs> it's not entirely true, actually, uh, because I do like writing. The, the last few books I've read were actually books about how to write. <laughs> And um, this is, you know, the nerd coming through hard here. Um, I, uh, I love to take the time to educate myself and learn something new about a topic that I'm already uh, passionate about. And, uh, you know, sort of learning how to, I, these were all about how to write novels. I, I don't plan to write novels, but um, I think from, from studying that, you, you can learn a lot about, you know, good writing and how to kind of make it a little dramatic here and there. And um, so that that was sort of a good mixture between business and pleasure. <laughs> uh, going through this and like marking things and having, having fun with it. Yeah, that's great. And like to your point earlier too about how like writing isn't really taught. Like in college, I took technical writing because I was a science major. And that's mm-hmm. literally the only writing class I've ever taken. <laughs> so like, and it was like yeah. freshman year or something. So zillions of years ago, it feels like, and that was mm-hmm. it. That was it. Like nothing in graduate school, nothing. Yeah. And your needs are probably very different from, from what was taught then in addition right. to just, you know, out of sight, out of mind, because mm-hmm. writing is all about practice and getting feedback and mm-hmm. then being open-minded enough to really take sit with it, take it in and then improve. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah I'm reteaching that to a lot of people <laughs> yeah I think the gist of the technical writing class was like use less adjectives basically <laughs> like less fluff and I was like that's not super yeah, helpful, helpful. <laughs> like, not so much. you know now it's just kind of boring and there's ways to do technical writing and it not also be boring but that wasn't what they, what they taught us um yeah well that is all really fantastic and yeah thank you so much for your time I appreciate you and it's so nice to meet you yeah likewise yeah Yeah. it's been great (laughs) yes thank you so much it was really great hey y'all it's Rachel here thank you so much for listening to this episode I hope you enjoyed it Um, I just wanted to have a quick reminder that if you or a friend or someone you think would be a good guest, if you have any people like that, let me know or send them my way in some way. Um, And how you can do that is you can find me on Twitter at Flying Cypress. You can find the podcast on Facebook at Storytellers of STEM. That's STEM with two M's. 
We also have a shiny new Twitter account for the podcast. So you can find the podcast on Twitter at Storytellers42. Yes, I'm a nerd. You can also email me, storytellersofstem at gmail.com. Or you can find me and everything else on my website, rachelvelani.com. So you have loads of ways to get in touch with me. I want to hear from you. Go like the Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter. Follow all the storytellers on Twitter since they're mostly all there. And just, you know, have a good day. And thank you for listening.